0: Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development. Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you're interested in enrolling in any of those courses for free, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, so this week, I'm very excited to bring Sharon Salzberg into the Commune family we are going to talk about Sharon's journey into Buddhism and also her new book coming out this September titled Real Change Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. Sharon also has a new course on Commune called Compassionate Resilience. So just go to onecommune.com and check out her new course, Compassionate Resilience. So Sharon and I uh, have known each other for quite a few years, but we've never actually sat down and had an in-depth discussion. Um, So this is a great opportunity for me to explore with her a variety of different topics from faith to resilience, from joy to community, and how we're all living with distraction and how we can rid ourselves of that preoccupation. So I welcome to the podcast this week, Sharon Salzburg. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. How you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good. I'm way busy. It's like crazy busy.
2: How are you? Everyone's seems... struggling. Everyone wants help. Also yeah, I have a book coming out true. September
1: first. So it's all, you know. Yeah. Happening.
0: Well, you're needed. You're in great need you're in great demand.
1: Yeah. It. No, I'm so happy to do this and thank you for everything you're doing for the world and for me <laughs> with the court. <cord. laughs> wow.
0: Yeah. We're all playing our little role uh against the backdrop. Of great uncertainty, which yeah, I suppose not, is something yeah. that we can talk about a little bit. Um, yeah, I have a laundry list of items that I would love to explore, mm-hmm. um, including faith, distraction, resilience, mm-hmm. joy, community.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: great. Um, but I suppose before we jump into these components of the human experience, maybe you could scaffold the conversation with a little background vis-a-vis your relationship with Buddhism, given that many of your foundational beliefs have been developed through that lens. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that would help um, create a bit of a framework for our discussion. So maybe you could of help define how you understand and practice Buddhism. And if you also want to, uh, you know, give us a little window into how that practice and belief developed, I think that would Mm be very helpful. Okay, great. Well, I went to college when I was 16 years
1: old. I grew up in New York City, and I'm a product of the New York City public school system, which meant I skipped two grades. And when I was a sophomore in college, really, honestly, as far as I can tell, it was kind of happenstance. I took an Asian philosophy course. And it was, it was kind of a situation where um, it was, I looked at the schedule. I thought, oh, that's on a convenient day. That's good. I'll take that one. And it completely changed my life, totally. Um, there were two ways, primarily. One was in discussing the Buddha, and they talked about his statement that there's suffering in life. This is a part of life. And I, like many people, had had a very traumatic, difficult childhood. And like for many people, my family was one where this was never, ever spoken about. It just just did not bring it up. And so all of the pain that I felt within, we kind of had nowhere to go and no external affirmation. And I felt very isolated, very different, very apart in in some ways. And and here was the Buddha saying right out loud, you belong. This is a part of life. You're not weird after
2: all. Mm.
1: You know, it's not just you. You're not so different. And that was like actually tremendously liberating. And then I heard in the context of that class that there were tools, there were actually methods that people could use called meditation. And – the statement was that when people practice meditation, they get happier. And I think if I was gonna use one word to describe myself at the age of um that point seventeen, I would say fragmented. I was just fragmented. And yeah. somehow in hearing that thing about meditation, that message, I look back at this moment so often like Why wasn't I content just to think, I'll study some more about this, or I'll read a few more books, or maybe I'll go to graduate school. You know, I just thought, I've got to learn how to meditate. It was so powerful and so passionate. It was like part of the same process, I think. It was stepping off the sidelines right into the center of possibility. And I looked, I was going to school in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I did not see it anywhere. And the university had an independent study program where, if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world theoretically for a year. So I created a project. I said I want to go to India and study meditation, and they said okay. So I left in the fall, uh, at the beginning of the semester, the fall of 1970, and uh, that was it. You know, that was that was really the journey to finding my life.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting thing uh, about Buddhism, and I will raise my hand quickly to admit that I'm a lay person. But from my relationship with it versus, I suppose, my somewhat Abrahamic upbringing, which I I believe we were both raised Jewish, Mm -hmm. um, that... I don't interpret Buddhism as a religion in the same way that I look at Judaism or Christianity or Islam. Uh I suppose in many senses, but in in one sense I feel that Buddhism is more of an empirical handbook almost, <laughs> not to not to take away some of the more mystical elements of it but it, it basically gives you a path. It says, okay, there's suffering and you're, cl- you're clinging to the impermanent state of things. And guess what? There's some liberation from that suffering and, and here's how you do it. <laughs> it's, it's, um, and it, it appeals, I suppose, to the more empirical part of me. And did you have the same relationship? to it and 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 do you feel also that there is a more mystical component of it
1: i definitely have the same relationship to it and i think when i went to india my aspiration was to find something very practical very direct i wanted to know the how-to you know i wasn't interested in the philosophy or the or the kind of cosmology or anything like that um and i did find it i did find the how-to and My first introduction to meditation was in the context of an intensive 10 day retreat taught by S.N. Goenka. And the first night of that retreat, Goenka said, The Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And Mm -hmm. our set of methods that this is a set of methods that is available to anybody of any faith tradition or no faith tradition. This is not about becoming a Buddhist. In fact, we look at the Buddha. As a symbol of a human being. He's always described as a human being who had some very deep questions about life. Like, where is happiness to be found after all? You know, and uh what about all the suffering and all that kind of thing? And and he, whatever answers he found, he found through the power of his own awareness. And so can we. Yeah. Can we really look at the Buddha to see ourselves. So that was like my first night, you know. And, uh, it, it was really the foundation of my understanding. And when I co-founded the Insight Meditation Society with Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, um, we had no models, actually. It's funny looking back on it, you know, because uh, we were very young. I was 23 and uh, Joseph and I had met in India. We spent a lot of time there. Um, Jack was having a parallel life in Thailand at the same time and you know, we were kind of fresh back to the States and um, every other center, as far as I know in existence at that point in the West was, was really, uh, it was not being run or created by Westerners. It might've been run by Westerners, but everything was referring back to a very particular Asian monastery or, or monk. Um, And we kept saying, well, how should it happen here? You know, what does it look like here? Wanting to keep absolutely the essence of what we had learned and the integrity of the methods, you know, and not to really mess with that at all. But at the same time, how does it translate here? So we'd have these endless debates, for example, should we have Buddhas out? You know, on the one hand, um, when we look at a Buddha, we see ourselves. And so there's a kind of culture of respect about our own potential as manifest in the buddha and, and you know he was a great teacher and and uh an important historical figure so that would argue to having them and on the other hand you know nobody was gathering to become a buddhist that wasn't the point and uh so maybe we shouldn't have them and you know somebody once said to me um years later when i was teaching loving kindness retreat somewhere she said, this stuff is so incredible. When did you make it up?
2: And I said, well, I didn't <laughs> make it
1: up. You know, I didn't make anything up. And you're lucky I didn't make it up, you know. And so that argument—that <laughs> kind of mentality argued, oh, yeah, we should have Buddhist statues. And then on the other hand, you know, people, uh, you know, didn't have, a, you know, a history or a ritual of bowing or anything, you know, relating to them. Like, it's so awkward. So right. we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Should we have Buddhas? No, I think we should. No, we shouldn't, you know. And then finally, it turned out when Jack uh, Cornfield was in Thailand in the Peace Corps, he'd done a lot of shopping and he bought a lot of Buddha statues. And one day, this U-Haul arrived with all these Buddha statues that had been in his mother's attic. And uh, we put them out, and so they're still there.
0: Oh, yeah, that solves that. The (laughs) U-Haul is here.
1: You know, but it was just sort of like everything was like that because. And a tradition anyway is not like a a monument, it's like a river. It's always being recreated and moving and and our immersion in it and our manifestation of it is what's most important. I will also say, though, certainly, you know, living in Asia for all those years, uh, India, Burma, Nepal, in a culture where um, life is viewed differently in a way, you know, that what we would call a mystical experience or even a paranormal experience is just kind of normal, you know? Um, It's just a different view. And so uh, I would say, yes, you know, I I don't disbelieve in in those things at all, but um, my practice and my teaching is not centered on them. It's not really the most relevant consideration.
0: Right. Yeah, I suppose this brings up something that I wanted to ask you about regarding faith and what faith means within the Buddhist context. Uh, And it's, um, you know, you bring up that notion of icon, you know, certainly in the Christian faith, for example, um, you know, you're not going to walk into a Christian place of worship without a cross, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, affixed somewhere. Um, and And the icon is you know takes paramount importance um, and certainly faith, as I understand it in Christianity, for example, is really an unwavering fealty to God without a tremendous empirical evidence of his existence so faith for me in that way, I suppose, is the belief without the existence of evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. But you, I'm curious, you know, how you think of faith within the Buddhist context. And, you know, I know that you wrote an article recently, I believe in The Hill, Mm -hmm. uh, about faith. So could you talk a little bit about faith, and Buddhism.
1: Sure. I actually wrote a book called Faith, uh, Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, which came out like 18 years ago.
2: wow.
1: Um, and in these times of such incredible chaos and disruption and anxiety and grief and so many things, one of the things I have been pondering for myself is like, what's still true? You know, what can I rely on? What can I count on? Um, and that was really the impetus to to write that that op-ed piece. Um, so within the Buddhist tradition, faith is not considered a commodity where you either have the right kind or enough, or you'll be condemned at all.
2: Yeah. The
1: literal meaning of the term is to offer your heart, to give over your heart to something or someone. And it's considered a journey. Um, the journey actually begins with what they call bright faith and that's likened to falling in love. It's inspiration. And we start there and it's a beautiful state. And yet it's also it leaves us very vulnerable. First of all, we can be quite fickle. You know, let's say it's meeting a teacher that brings forth that that quality of connection and care. And you meet one teacher one day and you think this is it, you know, and then you meet another teacher another day and you think, well, forget that other one. I'm following this one, you know, because it's not grounded yet in ourselves, in our own experience of what's true. And even trickier is that it's such an incredible feeling that we don't want to do anything to rock the boat and maybe threaten our proximity to what seems the source of that feeling. So that's where people get afraid to question or something's making them uneasy and they don't want to bring it up, you know, or something like that. And that's where what's called bright faith can degenerate into what we, you know, conventionally call blind faith. And
2: Hmm. the
1: antidote to that, the way to continue the faith journey is actually through doubt. It's through questioning, investigating, insisting on seeing the truth for yourself and Um, you know, that's not considered an enemy of faith. That's considered really a, a great asset to faith.
0: I think one generally associates faith with a tremendous amount of confidence in that thing in which you're investing that faith or devotion existing versus, uh, I suppose, a more humble approach, which I think is the one that you're espousing, is to really kind of continue to ask the questions and live in that curiosity.
1: I think there's some things that we do develop that kind of confidence in but it's not like a rigid holding of a belief you know we've seen something so clearly we become it we Mm. live it you know it's like if you meet i don't know desmond tutu is the person who's coming to my mind you know somebody like that you don't feel like oh that's a forced laugh you know he thinks to be jovial right now you know (laughs) Uh, yeah i
0: actually got to know him a little bit did
1: you maybe that's why it came I up my mind
0: yeah yeah and um it's funny um my dad did a lot of work in South Africa and that uh going off topic a tiny bit here but I um which inspired me my senior year of high school um they didn't really want me at the high school anymore anyways but I did a. <laughs> uh, I, uh an independent study to go to South Africa and this was in nineteen eighty eight, so still kind of in the midst of apartheid. And I had the opportunity to meet Desmond Tutu and he was just so generous. And like you say, I mean he just lights up a room and he's always positive and optimistic and it's characterized by a tremendous amount of laughter too, as as you point out. And while I was there, he said, Well I'm planning on coming to New York later this year. This was 1988. And so if you're in New York, please come see me. And so I happened to go to Columbia University where I took Robert Thurman's course. Um, oh. that night. And um, in the fall of 1988, sure enough, Desmond Tutu came to Riverside Church, and um, which was just down the street from the Columbia University campus. And at that juncture, I had just met a woman that I had fallen madly in love with, and my first attempt at chivalry was to take her to the Desmond Tutu <laughs> event at Riverside Church, and that I actually, because I had a relationship with him, could then introduce her to Desmond Tutu, which I thought would be, you know, a great reflection on me, <laughs> and um, and indeed it worked because. 32 years ago, that was when the first date I went on with my wife Skylar. We oh, just fabulous!
2: <laughs> we <laughs> just
0: celebrated our our anniversary just last week. So, anyways, a little bit off topic, but no, I... yeah, that was figured, wonderful.
1: I'm so happy. I wasn't yeah. sure how the story was going to end, so I'm really
0: happy. Yeah, a positive ending. Um, yeah, so um, I think that that is a, a really interesting Uh, understanding of faith. And um, I wonder how you square that with the uncertainty of the current times and the conceptual mind's need to often find certainty. But here we are in a time that is as uncertain as ever. Mm -hmm. And is faith tantamount in some way to an, a surrender to that to that uncertainty, or maybe you could help me put be a little more articulate around it.
1: Well, I mean, when then I would think of Buddhism by the way as a psychological system. So it's very consonant with what you were hmm. describing earlier. So um, you know, they have a very exacting habit of parsing words so that you know, in English we might say desire and desire, but they, they're two different words in Sanskrit, you know, and they mean very different things. And um, so they would actually, I think, make a differentiation between what, we, what they would call faith and what they call hope. Um, and it's not a recommendation of hopelessness, but hope is often very fixed or even the assertion, I'm sure it's going to work out exactly the way I want it to. Or, you know, in this dreadful situation, we will all emerge better than before. Um, That's a beautiful sentiment, but maybe not, you know, for everybody. And um, faith is more, I think, relying on that which is still true. And that would mean the capacity of our own hearts and minds to meet what's going on in a different way. Uh, Because the stress dynamic, after all, is a dynamic. It's the stressor, the circumstance, the pressure, the chaos, and then it's the resource with which it's met. You know, Mm. so it's never like a a command, like, well, now you've got this much stress, therefore you must fall apart. Um, You know, we all respond differently at different times. Did we sleep at all? You know, how much energy do we have? How alone do we feel? Uh, There's so many factors that go into that sense of resource. And, um, you know, and so we we can rely on the things we really care about. That's like our North Star, whatever we use to navigate through the ups and downs of life. And for some people, that's something like the power of love, you know, no matter what. That actually doesn't have to be destroyed, you know, because... That's not something someone else gives us, and even life doesn't give it to us. It's something we kind of grow um, Mm. from within, and things like
0: that. Yeah. It's funny that you categorize love as something that grows from within, because this is something that I've been trying to unpack recently. I've also been meditating on it, because... We just had our 25th wedding anniversary, so I've been writing about love. And the springing forth of love as an essence, um, okay, I'll try try to describe it this way, where we can experience emotions as phenomena, as sort of transitory phenomena, perceiving them sort of coming in and out of our life. And that could be fear, it could be jealousy, in some ways it could be love. You know, Rumi kind of talks about that as kind of guests coming into a home and then you know leaving the party or whatever, and you there kind of the, as the witness, as the subject kind of experiencing transitory phenomena moment to moment, and that these things like objects and emotions and feelings Are in some ways all the same. There's just things that phenomena that you can perceive um, that are impermanent. But I, I think, I hope there is actually another meaning or of love that is more of an essence of which you are the source, and it is not transitory. But it is something that can be cultivated, um, and not impermanent. Mm-hmm. Can you help me help me get my head around it?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, I actually wrote a book called Real Love. That was my yeah, most I recent book before Real Change. Yeah. Um, I'm on the real train. Yes, um, you are. And some of that book was born. Uh, quite a bit of it actually was born out of a line in this movie, Dan in Real Life which came out maybe 12 years ago, something like that. Um, And one of the characters in the movie says, um, love is not a feeling, it's an ability.
2: Mm. And
1: I was just so taken with that because it resembled so strongly experiences I'd had in intensive meditation, especially doing loving kindness practice, which is a particular method of meditation. And it was like, You know, I realized that up until I'd had those experiences, I thought of love as something someone could give to me, but then they could also take it away from me rather than a capacity within myself. And the image I kept getting was like the UPS person standing at the doorstep, looking down at the package, seeing the address and saying, nah, I don't think so. I'm walking away. And then I'd have nothing. I'd just be bereft. But if it's a capacity Certainly, within me, then other people may ignite it and help nourish it or threaten it, but it's mine ultimately to tend to protect, to grow and and that is so much what my experience was in in these meditation courses, and I think that's really true it's it's a it's an ability, and uh we can nurture it, we can nourish it, and this is not. A weakness you know sometimes people feel and say you know then you get too gullible or you get too uh, passive you know and you just give in too much and you don't want to be that loving you know like you, you'll you be too sweet and you'll you'll never say no and people I mean with all kinds of comments and and I think that's actually kind of interesting because I think it reflects the degeneration of our understanding because like why did love suddenly or slowly become like a weakness in our minds, you know, and something that uh, just kind of brings you down, you know, instead of the opposite. One of the reasons love or loving kindness I, I feel is so powerful is because it reflects the truth that our lives are all connected. So it's not like a phony idea we're trying to superimpose on. A different reality. It is the reality. And so what I say is, you know, it doesn't take a spiritual understanding to see interconnection. Science shows us this and economics shows us this and environmental consciousness certainly shows us this. And even epidemiology shows us this. And so mm-hmm. I, I've been talking about epidemiology for a long time. People used to say to me, why are you using that word? Or, I don't know what that word means or something like that, you know, but, um, and so it's funny now, of course, here we are, you know, the world is connected and what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there. It really filters here and what we do, it matters because our actions will also filter out, you know, and so the the truth of life is connection that we are um, mm-hmm. inextricably connected and it's different than liking somebody, you know, or approving of them or wanting to see them succeed or or anything like that. And so your response in a particular context, a certain moment might be kind of fierce, you know? It might be really strong. It might be saying no, no I'm not giving you any more money or no you can't move back in or whatever. You know, a strong boundary, but it doesn't have to be coming from a place of hatred, which is a whole other thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> This idea of recognizing connection and, um, and I have begun to understand spirituality as the recognition that we are all connected by a power greater than us. And it's the recognition of that interconnection that gives us joy and a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. And I think that that basic idea is echoed across what you might call true world theories or religions, Um, and there are many instances of epiphany, and if you're Christian, you might identify that, because that's what your context is, you might identify that sensation or that epiphany as oneness with god um, you know that also exists in islam i think with taqwa or in hinduism with brahman essentially that you connect to a an all encompassing being of which you are just a modification because all of these religions and true world theories and ways that we've devised to intersubjectively understand the world because they all have a certain utility which is helping us to mm, to connect with this idea Do you think that Buddhism, if it wasn't called Buddhism, let's say, Mm -hmm. let's just say it was called a philosophy, a way of life, an ethical Mm -hmm. structure. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Do you think that that set of beliefs and ideas could sit in some ways behind all of these other uh, philosophies and religions that then we have created To in some ways connect us with the concept of self transcendence that is inherent to Buddhism at all, in a very, and Buddhism presents it in a way that is not particularly dogmatic. Um, Do you get, you see where I'm going with this a little bit? Uh, Not
1: exactly. What do you mean
0: by sits behind? Well, okay, sits at a more, exists at a more fundamental level that let's say somehow we decided to, that religious leaders across the entire world all got together and decided to say, well, hmm, there's an interesting experience that we have in Islam um, and there's a similar experience that we have in Judaism, and there's a similar experience that we have in Christianity. And you know, you were able to essentially draw a circle around what those experiences were. Uh, and and that there are there is some commonality there that exists before and behind all of the existence of those religions that that is fundamental to who we are as humans regardless of what our religious affiliation is. And, um, and to me, what I think that is, is what you have elucidated, this notion of being inextricably connected. Um, and uh, anyways, I, I'm not sure that I've, I, I'm making that clear, but... Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, the language is, of course, difficult because people use words. In yes. so many different ways, but um when people say God is love, you know, yeah. uh that's different than a patriarch, you know, and sure. Uh or um what was Thomas Merton's quote? Something like uh, by the time something he said it much better than this, but you know, by the time you're looking for God outside of yourself, you've made a big mistake.
2: Yeah. You yeah. know,
1: I mean there are lots of ways in which Uh, actual experiential traditions, um, you know, not dogmatic traditions or dogmatic aspects of traditions, but experiential traditions, they may use very different language, but you really get the feeling, you know, that they are talking about that kind of experience where um, one realizes that uh, it really is a question of we that are, are... universe or being a part of the fabric of life is so fundamentally true. I mean, there's a very coarse, simple example. I was uh, riding in a car with a friend once and we were caught in this incredible, unbelievable, terrible traffic and we're complaining bitterly about it the whole while. And then my friend turned to me and said, well, we're the traffic too, you know? And I thought, (laughs) oh, that's so interesting. Like, what's this feeling like? It's my road. I own the road. You are an interloper who's holding me back. But it's like if we're the traffic too, it's like that sense of the center and the margins drops out. And here we are together.
2: Yeah.
0: The highway is a uh, ripe metaphor <laughs> for interdependence and interconnection. Um, and it's one of the few places, um, just because I suppose there is a self interest component of it, mm-hmm. where if you drove too fast, you'd kill yourself. Yeah. Um, but it is a place where we actually abide on a very equal basis um, by the tenets of the social contract, right? Mm hmm. Um, i have a so I have a story um I suppose this would be maybe considered sort of free psychotherapy, but I'll take advantage of it <laughs> uh, where and I've been living this out, and I think it speaks to um some of the ways that you talk about distraction um and living in the past. And taking past experiences and projecting them into the future, and then kind of living inside of that chatterbox of future and past. So, when I was in seventh grade in junior high school, I was thinking about this this morning. So, um, I I thought this would this you could help me with this. When I was in seventh grade, we were kind of Engaged in, you know, regular seventh grade horseplay at my middle school. And a couple of kids pushed me into a locker and closed the locker door. Mm. And, you know, it was like a typical narrow, you know, hallway, municipal school, public school locker. and. Very, very tight, very dark, and of course, you know, I reacted as a kid might react. I was absolutely apoplectically, you know, crazy, and mm-hmm. I was screaming, and I was pounding, and I was out of control, and um, and I was so scared. And, uh, and it's funny because I remember exactly where it was, exactly where the building is, exactly, uh, et cetera. And, you know, they finally let me out. Of course, it seemed like 20 minutes, but it was probably a minute. Um, and, you know, I came out sort of flailing around and snot spraying everywhere, you know, you could imagine. And, That experience then began to kind of play out in various other settings where I, anytime I was in sort of a closed environment in which I had no control, Mm
2: -hmm. I started
0: to experience panic attacks. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, as I became an adult, um, I would start to think about experiences that I might start having that echoed a setting that was similar to those experiences that had elicited a kind of a panic attack.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: you can imagine, you know, being in an elevator in a high rise or to some degree being in a very packed airplane, et cetera. And... I started modifying my behavior out of sort of a regulatory process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, to avoid those situations.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And in some cases, it really um, had a detrimental effect on my life because I was missing opportunities or sort of skirting opportunities that just required sort of the most simplest basic function from me (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, which was like going to the top of a skyscraper in midtown now it wasn't to the point where it was like ridiculously debilitating and i didn't do that but i would look for ways to avoid that and i was always really the point is is that i was always thinking forward about like oh god am i going to have to do that or whatever But I'm not even sure, I mean, the story that I'm telling myself Mm -hmm. is that that was the reason why I can't go and do this other thing next week. (laughs) And I don't know if I am just basically created a story about the past, which I'm not even sure is 100% true,
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: but I'm then identifying myself with that story. And projecting that into the future. And there's, Mm -hmm. it's honestly somewhat debilitating, has been debilitating somewhat in my life.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you might be investing a lot in the story, but also possible and probably likely is that your body remembers, you know, Mm -hmm. if not that experience, some experience which is being activated in these times. And, um, you know, I think part of it is being able to see in the light of some kindness toward yourself what you're feeling, to register that it's maybe old, you know, and to learn how to release things um, through your body, through your nervous system, even just simple tools of breathing. So, for example, um, I taught a retreat. Um, last summer actually, for people who'd been affected by gun violence, Um, uh, they'd lost a child, or they had been shot themselves, or they were a teacher at a school shooting, or something like that. And there were a number of people uh, there from Parkland, Florida, uh, including this one teacher who later told me a story saying that, well, the, the big word during the retreat was tools. You know, we're just going to offer you some tools, and you can experiment with them, tools of mindfulness, of meditation, of loving kindness, um, yoga. Experiment with them. See if something feels like it's going to be useful for you. So this teacher told me later that she had to leave at the end of the retreat, fly back to Florida, and the next day she was back at work, at school, (laughs) and they had a drill, like a shooter drill. Which of course is a tremendously re-traumatizing experience. And she said she was doubled over in a closet, having a panic attack, when she had the thought, you know what? I have some tools. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And she began using her breath or using loving kindness, you know, in some way. The thing with the idea of tools is that it can't be pass fail, you know. It has to be, well, let me try this. Oh, this isn't working. That's okay. You know, let me try that. And you know, not really being down on yourself or in a hurry, you know, but um, it's a very different reality to face these things, which are in your nervous system. They're inscribed in your body uh, with the sense of I have some tools, which doesn't mean that you will necessarily eradicate the feeling or the memory or the body memory, but you will be experiencing it in a different environment, you know, with a lot more spaciousness and a lot more ease of heart and a lot more forgiveness of yourself for what you're going through. And that's really where the work is.
0: Yeah, I heard you describe once the the tool of breath mm-hmm. as recognizing a friend in a crowded room or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: thought it was... Uh, it was a visualization that I could really understand. Um, I don't know if I did it justice.
1: <laughs> you did. I mean, it's actually a meditation instruction. Be with the breath um, as though you were spotting a friend, say, on a crowded street. You don't have to, like, shove aside everyone else and say, get out of my way. You're, you're bothering me. But your interest, your enthusiasm is going, hey, there's my friend. There's the breath. So it it does become like a refuge for us.
0: Hm. Speaking of refuge, um the word that I hear right now that most broadly defines what I might call the current human experience is exhaustion.
2: Mm
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and there's Myriad reasons for this. Um, I think I read a Coretta Scott King quote or list that was circulating on some social media platform, which I generally, generally assiduously avoid. But um, and she was talking about what activists must do right now, and and one of the thing, one of the kind of bullet points on this relatively short list. Was self care, mm-hmm. and I think on the surface, this idea or even the word self self care can ring of some kind of self indulgence,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, but uh, I don't think that's true at all. So I think you know you talk, um, and obviously we made a course about resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what resilience is and how to maintain it?
2: Well,
1: self-care is is, is a term that, you know, um especially if you're you're very busy, you know, like you're yeah. taking care of a family or, you know, you're a, an activist, or you're working or you're, you know, uh it's easy to feel that that's selfish and self-centered or self-preoccupied but it's really not. It's about replenishing oneself and the recognition that we get depleted. And, you know, going back to that stress dynamic, there has to be some sense of resource with which we're meeting adversity and challenge. And um, otherwise, we're not really meeting it. We're enduring it maybe. And and I agree. I think people are exhausted. You know, like I, I felt um, you can just sort of see the the waves, you know, from anxiety, to grief, to exhaustion. And, and part of it is the way we inevitably project into the future, like how much longer, you know? Right. And we try to bear it all at once and it's just impossible. So I see resilience um, really as a way of strengthening and nurturing that sense of resource. Uh, usually it's described as bouncing back, you know, being able to come back and, um, there's something about that that's true, but it's not just coming back to status quo. It's to be continually generating that sense of resource so we can meet what is, and uh, it's made up of self-care as well as care for others. And it's made up of taking in the joy and not just uh, having a kind of singular view of what's wrong and what's painful. I mean, we need honesty about that for sure, but, um, the point isn't to drown in it because then nobody is served, but to have some greater sense of compassion for ourselves as well as for others, and some sense of um, inner sufficiency. Like we can meet this moment, and and we really can develop that. You know, that's a capacity, just like love is a capacity or an ability within us. And um, you know, and so that's really what. Resilience is—it's the ability to grow and generate and return to. I always hesitate with the word maintain. I, of course, use it as a human being, and mm-hmm. um, but I think it implies um, that you failed if you lose it. You know, yeah. and it's really not true. If you go back to the most funda- fundamental or foundational meditation instruction which would be choose an object of awareness. Let's say the feeling of your breath, rest your attention on that object. And when you find your mind has wandered, see if you can gently let go and come back. And people tend to think, well, you know, I could be with three breaths yesterday before my mind wandered. So today it's mm-hmm. gonna be eight and tomorrow it's gonna be 40. And then... But that's not the point. The point is in the letting go and in the coming back.
2: Mm-hmm. And even
1: if you have to do that a billion times, in a sitting, that's what the training really is, to let go gently and to be able to return. It's like a practice of recovery. Um, mm. And that's why we call meditation a training in resilience, because we're we're always practicing letting go and starting over.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: You mentioned joy um, in there as a component of resilience. Um, And, you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but I know that some evolutionary biologists might maintain that for purposes of self-preservation, we are wired for negative emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and just through observational study (laughs) of three (laughs) children, of three daughters in, in their teenage years, um, uh, I might, uh, back that theory up. <laughs> but, um, so if there is truth to that, um, how do we, and we have a propensity for negativity or pessimism, um, how do we cultivate the ability to experience joy?
1: Well, I think the, the hardest part, in a way, is wanting to, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, you know, it's feeling like it's okay. It's what you were talking about before, that it's okay. You know, this is not selfish. This is not self-centered. This is not superficial. Um, it's really like restoring oneself uh, to a greater state of balance. And, and uh, I think many, maybe all evolutionary biologists would say we have a negativity bias um, and so it takes intentionality to take in the good, to take in the joy. And so I think the hardest part is wanting to, you know, and then it's seeing the difference between forcing yourself, you know, and and putting on a veneer of like good cheer when you're really miserable um, compared to I'm going to turn my attention to terrain where it might not go automatically. I'm going to see what it's like. So for example, in thinking of yourself, um, many of us at the end of the day would do a kind of evaluation, like how did I do today? And many of us would pretty well just obsess or fixate on the things we did wrong and how we didn't measure up and what we failed at. And so the task is to ask yourself, anything else happened today? You know, like anything good? in me in my life and it takes intentionality it's like a gratitude practice Mm
2: -hmm. you know
1: and I often say um, you know as many researchers and therapists would say one of the most powerful things any of us could do is write down three things each night that we're grateful for from the day although somebody said to me not too long ago that they were going to try to find one thing a month and I said That's not enough, you know, (laughs)
2: Um,
1: because one could be that you're breathing, you know. It doesn't have to be so grandiose. But I also say, as is true, this doesn't come automatically to me. My personal conditioning, my familial conditioning, my cultural conditioning is such that I'm so much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about what disappointed me and what I can complain about and how I didn't show up or this person didn't show up or they're always – was an airline, you know, and in the life of constant travel or, you know, a phone service or my internet connection or that's just where my mind would tend to go. And so it takes intentionality, like what else happened today? You know, it's not denying the difficult or trying to cover it over, but it's not the whole story and it tends to become the whole story for us. And so um, we need that kind of flexibility of intention and the willingness to make that experiment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the recurring thoughts that I've been having over the last number of months, um, you know, certainly as it pertains to the fight for racial justice and Black Lives Matter. Um, but also the prospects of environmental catastrophe um, and virtually any kind of modern societal salient issue that, you know, as I try to unpack the root causes um, of a lot of these symptoms... I come back to systems and structures like capitalism, for example, or in some ways ascendancy of fundamentalism or, you know, there's other systems and structures that um, sort of contain these, these stories of separation. Mm -hmm. And, I am trying to find uh, one thing that I consistently land on within the examination of these systems and structures is that they lack an ethical and moral framework. So, you know, some people just say, well, free markets, you know, capitalism, let it do its thing. I'm like, yeah, well, but doing its thing you know, creates unprecedented income inequality. Or many people argue that the genesis of slavery was rooted in capitalism before it was rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or, you know, environmental catastrophe, um, which is generally rooted in in maximizing corporate profits. So, um, so I wonder if you have thoughts on how humanity can potentially lean on Buddhism, but maybe there are other ways, to develop a core uh, a core ax- set of axioms around ethics and morality. You know, such that we can use those as lenses mm-hmm. you know, through which to build some of these systems and structures that govern our lives, so I if you could help talk about that for a second.
1: Well, I don't think it has to be Buddhism. I think that uh yeah. you know love thy neighbor as thyself is really the point. Um, I have a friend who who's British and he grew up in the Church of england and He said from the time he was like a young child, maybe nine years old, he would hear that, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. And he said, like, he'd get goosebumps, you know, even as a child, he would just feel thrilled.
2: Hmm. And then he
1: quickly began getting into trouble because he would say, well, how? How do we do that? He'd say, we don't like our neighbor
2: or (laughs) we're
1: afraid of our neighbor or we don't like ourselves very much. We fight all the time, you know, so. Um, I think the tenets are there, we know. But the question is, how do we live it? You know, how do we realize it from within? And and that's the process of um, seeing ourselves in one another, understanding what assumptions we're making, being able to let go of them. And even as basic in terms of introspection, whether it's through meditation or some other way of seeing, wow, you know, I thought this... Pursuit of, you know, so much money was going to make me really happy, and it kind of didn't, you know. Um, or I thought vengeance was the way to be strong, and look at that—I'm enslaved to the thought of this other person. Or <laughs> I thought compassion was the stupidest thing in the world, and you're a sucker, and you end up just being taken advantage of. And look at that—look at what it feels like to actually help help out somebody in this, like, incredibly strange situation. You know, I saw so many times, like, when I was in New York City, uh, which is where I have an apartment, although I I have a house here in Massachusetts, and I left New York March 14th, having just gotten there March 2nd um, from California. Uh, I came up here because I thought it, it was, like, very tense, very anxious there, and it was before everything shut down, and I thought, I'll come up. I'll go up to Massachusetts for a couple of weeks. So I came up with like my snow boots, you know, (laughs) here I am um, still. But, you know, in that anxiety as I was teaching and, and, uh, you know, I could just feel it all around me as well as within me. And, and the one thing I could say to people that would actually bring them some relief would be, is there someone you can help? Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I would offer suggestions about breathing or, And it's not to say those things are ineffectual, but uh, it like wasn't working, you know? And that's what I mean by it's not pass, fail, you know? It's like an experiment. But the one thing that was tried and true was, is there someone you can help? And uh, I saw how just forging and reinforcing that sense of connection can get us through a lot.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's hard to hold that clarity um, all the time that when one feels a sense of anxiety that the best way to direct their energy is out <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to someone else. Um, but inevitably that does trigger a, a sensation of happiness and, and joy and whether or not that's just... Your biochemistry or something potentially more cosmic, I don't know, um, or both, but I think that that is sound advice. Um, You know, I I think about some of when you describe those early days of being in Asia and, you know, sitting around the table with. Jack Cornfield and going to visit Ram Das and I mean you know for us that are just kind of making our way along this journey, um, boy do I, I do I wish I could be I've been a, a fly on the wall in, in a <laughs> lot of those discussions and I'm I'm sure that you reminisce about those with great fondness, um, because. You know, you've been so instrumental in creating that community here in the United States that, you know, from those early moments has really, really blossomed and flowered. Um, and I hope that you have a sense for that and how important you've been in that journey, uh, to, to spreading a lot of these ideas and practices, you know, really to the mainstream. And, um, uh, and this is not just sort of an attempt to kind of blow up your ego, (laughs) I actually actually have a point here that I'm, as you can tell, I I slowly get to the point, (laughs) um, which is how, because you are for me kind of the distillation of humility, you know, that someone has accomplished, as much as you've accomplished, been so important to a particular tradition, uh, so influential for so many people, yet I feel that you, among very, very few, (laughs) managed to (laughs) um, maintain uh, um, a humility and, um, I guess... A commitment to the dharma um that uh that is very very unique so i wonder you know what is your secret there um <laughs> if there if there is one and and maybe are the, maybe sometimes you're in the shower and you're like well actually i am pretty fucking big shit <laughs> you know whatever um and that's cool <laughs> you don't have to admit that if you don't want um, but you know because that that is that is, I think, difficult. You know, we're looking for the approval of others in the things that we do often. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you don't care about that.
1: Well, thank you. That's all really beautiful. Um, it's really beautiful things for you to say. And I mean, there are things that I understand, you know, like um, that my life evolves in such a way that. I really did do some things, I mean, I have a legacy, and I have a retreat center next door, um, which at the moment is closed, but it's been here since February, 1976, and uh, it's been, a, a, I think, a crucially important element of the spread of mindfulness and meditation in this country, and I've written now 11 books. and um, you know, But mostly, I think, my legacy centers around loving kindness meditation i was um i wrote the book loving kindness um uh 25 years ago it came out and uh i had been teaching loving kindness for 10 years before then i was a very slow writer uh i also was using a typewriter um but uh you know it was uh not that popular a meditation technique when i began teaching it here and um it's grown so much in, in appreciation and importance. And um, I really feel like that's my legacy. So sometimes when I'm being introduced, uh, which happens a lot, you know, people will say, and she is the person who brought the teachings of loving kindness, uh, you know, from that tradition into this country. And, and then people will sometimes turn to me and say, I know you don't like to hear that. And I sit there and think, but it's true. You know, like my math, that's not like boasting. That's just the way it happened. You know? Um, and I do appreciate that. I've had an extraordinary, I still have an extraordinary life and, uh, but maybe, you know, the deeper response to your question comes back to, um, part of it was the sign of the times. Like, you know, I began teaching because my teacher told me to teach. Um, Not because I, I wanted a career change, you know, or something like that. (laughs) Uh, It was different then. It was very different. And I, I, uh, I had gone to see this teacher of mine, this woman named Deepama in Calcutta. This was 1974 and I was ready to come back to the States really for a brief visit in my mind, you know, that I was going to get a new visa and do some things and I was going to go back to India for the rest of my life. And I went to see her uh, in her her house in Calcutta, her apartment in Calcutta Um to say goodbye and get her blessing for my journey. And, and she said to me, um, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. I mean, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to teach. I'm coming right back. And I can't teach anyway. It was unthinkable. And, and she said, yes, you will. And then she said two things. She said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And it's true, I had had a really traumatic childhood and I'd never before, I mean, I knew that's why I was an in India at such a young age, but I never really thought that the things I had gone through might have some merit in my ability to give to others. And then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do, what you're thinking you can't do that's going to stop you. And I left her room, it's really like a kind of tenement room, walked down these four flights of stairs. Thinking, no, I won't. That's so ridiculous. And I came back to the States and uh, things evolved so that I went out to Boulder to see Joseph, who was teaching there with Ramdas uh, at Naropa Institute. It was the first summer, and Jack Cornfield was living down the hall. Mm-hmm. And we all got together, and then Joseph stayed on to teach second summer semester, and I stayed on with him. Then we got invited to teach a month-long retreat. Then we got invited to teach a 10-day retreat. And and it just kept happening. And one day I woke up, and I thought she was right. <laughs> you know, like, my life is here now. And, you know, so, um, you know, my whole teaching is, is really based on the, I think, truly great teachers I had who were not uh, really into their ego gratification, you know, or um, they really lived up to what is actually a Zen saying that every good teacher wants students who surpass them.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. Do you feel like <laughs> you have been awakened? And <laughs> obviously the, I guess the literal definition of the Buddha is awakened one Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and the attainment of, I suppose, Nirvana or more, maybe Vipassana sort of the, the ability to have insight into the true nature of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel like you get glimpses into that or can you sit in that space on a consistent basis or or, or where do you (laughs) put yourself in relationship to that? Uh
1: Um, I think that we all have glimpses and some glimpses that are so powerful that there's no returning from them, Mm. not in the sense of dwelling in them all the time, but in, in so deeply knowing this is true.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: You know, and I think, uh certainly i've i've had you know experiences like that and i feel um really fortunate uh to have them it's not say you know like i won't get overwhelmed or we don't get overwhelmed and and forget in the moment but if somebody were to ask me there's nothing in me that can say the opposite yeah th- you know things don't change or holding on's going to do you good or um One of the things I've been reflecting on in this really difficult time is this saying of the Buddhas uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. later reflected um, where the Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And I always thought it was kind of quirky because it's like, this is Mr. Impermanence saying this is an eternal law. (laughs) Um, But there's nothing in me that actually if you looked at me and said, Do you think hatred can, you know, vanquish hatred? And sometimes we really wish it could because it's more near at hand, you know, than love. But I know so fully that no, it's not. So I think we all have those experiences and they grow. And that's what it is. That's what awakening is. And am I awakened like the Buddha was awakened? No, I doubt it,
2: you
0: know. Yeah, I suppose um, it's interesting because I've had – certain peak experiences i suppose that have pocked my life over time you know some naturally generated and and some not mm-hmm. um, and you know i've i've wondered if kind of peak experience is it's it's a window into i think some of the kinds of connections that we talked about earlier and perhaps mm-hmm. the most embodied and perhaps hyperbolized way but it's very hard well impossible to live within Mm -hmm. by definition a peak experience Mm -hmm. but i suppose that just by having them it sort of keeps you closer down the hallway to that room (laughs) Mm -hmm. um uh is that would you would you do you feel like that's a um, a uh, a description that you can live with.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, does it keep you down the hallway? I think it. I maybe it introduces us, you know, and that, mm. and some people would say then the work starts, you know.
2: Yeah. Right. Um,
1: I'm not honestly. I believe there's always a practice, whatever you want to describe it as. There's always some practice that then ensues um, to live more uh, frequently and, and more at ease in the deepest experiences we have known.
0: Mm. And would you categorize, or would you say that like the Eightfold Path is the roadmap there for keeping one's works and actions in close alignment to the principles?
1: I mean, it's certainly a great roadmap um, because it encompasses how we speak to one another and how we how we live, and and what are questions of integrity and how do you have really deep self respect and self love? It's probably not if you're telling a lot of lies, because then you're all paranoid and weird, and you know. So it, it encompasses action and behavior and speech and even livelihood and. Um, the arts of concentration and mindfulness and wisdom and intentionality. And it's pretty thorough.
2: mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, are you ready for an eventful fall?
1: I think so. You know, I, I realize, I mean, I have realized uh, through my meditation quite some time ago that I get into the most trouble when I uh, – Just dwell in anticipation. Like, how can I do this for three more months? Or what will it be like when I go back to New York? And, you know, it was just my birthday the other day last week. And uh, Facebook, some maybe three, it was three years ago, my goddaughter got me all these heart shaped balloons (laughs) and uh, helium balloons. And they were in my apartment in New York. And Facebook put up that photo from three years ago. And I looked at it and I thought, that's my apartment. <laughs> oh my God, look, that's inside my apartment. Right. Like, and it was like, oh, you know, I was like, really there. And then I wasn't there, you know, for months. And uh, like now, and, and I think, what would it be like and how will it would be? And can I manage it? Well, you know, and I think, you can't go there. You can't live now and then, you know. Well, I also have a, a great, great conviction that everybody needs to vote. And and engage, and I think you know everything leading up to the election will be about, um, on my, in terms of my efforts, you know, will include something of of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe it's the clearest civic analogy to the Buddha's teaching about the innate worth of everybody, hmm. the innate dignity of everybody. It's like you have a voice, you have the right to use it to express it. Um, and after that, I think I'm taking the week after the election off.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can follow Sharon's journey on her website at com and sign up for her weekly newsletter. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, please feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to respond to every message. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.